Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Footballer's Voice. Obviously, we've kicked back the new year, 2022, with the episode uh, last week with Kayla Morrison, the captain of Melbourne Victory. Obviously, a pretty crazy story of, of her season doing an ACL in round one after a pretty stellar year last year. So if you did enjoy that episode or if you did miss it, go back and check it out. It was a great one. Um, we've got another guest on. And if you remember Kayla's story at the start of last week, we did actually, we were supposed to have her on last year. And two days before the podcast, she did uh, her ACL. Um, so we couldn't do it. Similar story to this man, Jackson Irvine, which we were supposed to do it a few days out from Christmas. And the most bizarre story ever was like you were you were stuck in, was it the UK? And there was like the COVID border restrictions were going crazy. You couldn't get home. Um, but we finally got you here, mate, in Socceroo Camp, the St. Paulie midfielder. It's great to have you on. Oh, good to see you, mate. It's been a long time, but nice to have a catch up. I know, right? It is um, it is pretty crazy. And yeah, for, for, the, for those listening, we were speaking just before we jumped on. Like We go way back. Um, and I've been trying to find the photo of this, but the first state, state team you could make in Victoria was the primary school's under-12 team. And in that team in 2005 was myself, Jackson Irvine, Curtis Good, Jamie McLaren, and a bunch of other guns that obviously were went on to play some pretty pretty good level of football. But do you remember that time? Like, does that still stand out to you? Obviously, the first state team, it was kind of like playing in the Champions League at the time or something. 100%. It was massive. I'll never forget it. I remember standing around, like, um, you know, you go through, like, all the trial gate, like, set. you start at the very beginning, there's like hundred thousands or whatever, and then it filters down. Um, it's, I remember standing around, like, in that very end, like, all nervous and all the ways, <laughs> and you got, we all got picked, and it was just like, unbelievable it's like that first kind of uh yeah i know it was a massive a massive deal for us at the age of 11 you know what i mean to be someone like that so good so and and the fact that so many of us kicked on yeah it's crazy crazy. it's crazy and and it was brutal because like i don't know if you remember it but i think you touched on it after each of like those trial sessions the coach would stand out the front with a clipboard and say these Mm. are the players that have made it and you just call and you go stand on one side and then everyone else was just standing there looking at you and they didn't make it and you're like well, that, that, yeah, like, ru- ruthless, right? We're proper ruthless, yeah, especially for kids that age. It's, it's um, yeah, obviously, we came out of it on the on that side, but bloody hell, tough going, yeah, to go through that. <laughs> not, not great. I know, right? Well, it probably prepared us for a little bit because the one thing uh, I did want to share, and it's quite unique in this sense, and that's why I wanted to go into it. But the team we had at that time, Victoria. There was a lot of great players in, in other states that we played at the Nationals, but we had a talk mid-tournament with one of like the ex-Socceroos or representatives of the tournament, and they were just telling us, like, look, we don't want to be a bit of a buzzkill, but statistically only one of you maybe from each team will make it. And I remember being like, oh, God, like that's pretty severe. But then looking back in our team, there was like five professionals and three now playing yeah. for the Socceroos, which is remarkable, yourself, Jamie, and Curtis, um, which is pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable how um, a lot of our careers have like intertwined from like starting back then, and how we all kind of yeah cross paths again in later in the careers and full kind of yeah stayed in the game. It's it's yeah it is really unique, I suppose, um, out of one age group to have to have that many players starting as you say from. I think that was where like I knew Curtis from local before that, but where most of us kind of met around that time, and then as you say, we kind of played against each other and all. The way through, kind of until we were all went pro at what sixteen or whatever it yeah, was. So crazy. funny how it worked. I know, and to to just like 
add some more surrealness to this situation. And before we get into the meat of this podcast, like we can't talk about the week you've just had without mentioning the game against Borussia Dortmund. So we've gone from talking about the under-12 championships to now uh, so poorly <laughs> beating Borussia Dortmund in the cup, um, which is one extreme to the other. But can you explain to us just about? Hey, that? don't down, don't play, don't downplay the under twelve yeah, Victorian look. state team, mate. That was, you know, there's, <laughs> New South you can, Wales you can put Victoria it on either was, side. <laughs> yeah, New South Wales Metro Victoria was one derby, but um, can you, mate, that, what what a week? Like, how was how was the game? How was the you know the, oh. the rooms and the feeling afterwards at the club? Yeah, unbelievable. Obviously. You go into it. Um, it. Probably one of the biggest differences I've had in Germany has been the attitude towards the Cups. In England, the Cups are seen as, the FA Cup's got such a big history, but it's almost seen as a bit of a drainer because the seat, you play so many games in the championship and, um, you know, unless you get like a really glamorous tie, um, you know, it's seen as a bit of an inconvenience, but um, in Germany, they take it so seriously. And that was that shows by the team, like Dortmund came to us with a full... Um, with their strongest eleven, and for us, it's, you know, you got they go into it with a full belief that cup upsets can happen, and um, we set up like to prepare. Obviously, you're playing against one of the best teams in Europe, against arguably the best striker in the world, <laughs> and you know you can do, you can do all the preparation you want, but you know you, three things you need: you need defend for your life, <laughs> you need to run like you've never run before, and you need your goalie to have a worldie, <laughs> and that's like <laughs> that's just like you need all of those things to happen. And we scored after about three minutes. So we got off like a perfect start. And I reckon in about the two minutes after we scored, they had two one-on-one with our, with our keeper and they missed them both. Oh wow! And then we went up the other end and um, like decent ball into the box and the guy scored an own goal. And you know, when you kind of, you know, when you, you know the feeling when you look around, it's like oh, it's our day, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's all kind of, it's all working for us. And, um, yeah, came in and obviously we got through and just ridiculous, crazy experience to have been in a game like that and come out on the, on the winning side. Just touching on the cup, like from from my understanding, I'm pretty sure obviously Dortmund's out due to your guys' work, but I'm pretty sure Bayern's out too. So it's opened mm-hmm. up now that cup because some of the teams in there, like it's it's very level playing field as well. Yeah, uh, it's, everyone's like really excited about it this season. I think it's the first year in 11 years that either – Bayern or Dortmund won't be in the final, wow. um, which is pretty, which is pretty hectic. So yeah, it's wide open. There's four second league teams, four um, top division teams. Um, Red Bull, Leipzig are probably the big kind of on paper the biggest team kind of left in, um, but oh, it's going to be unbelievable. And Hasbro Hamburg, our rivals, are still in it as well. So um, you know, a little a derby quarterfinal might be might be on the cards as well. So yeah. It's hectic. It's, it's open as it's as open as the cup's been, and yeah, in over in you know, 11, 12 years. So everyone's pretty excited. That's amazing, man. I could I could not believe it. Like just seeing photos of you playing against Dortmund and then winning, and then talking about like the cup, and I'm like, oh my god! Like it's it's really incredible your rise to where you've come from. And <clears throat> we're going to go mm. into your story a little bit, but I just want to focus on Germany a little bit because you you played a large part mm. of your career in the UK. Like, how do you, how yeah. do you like living in Germany? How's how's life there for you? Uh, I honestly can't speak highly enough of the experience I've had over the last six months since I made the made the switch to Germany. Um, I think I was ready for a time in my not just in my career but in my life to have a, a change, a cultural change, a football change, and it all just tied in perfectly with the opportunity to come and play for Sampoli, which just aligns with my personality in so many ways and. 
Um, fortunately, obviously on the pitch, it's clicked into place um, pretty well as well, which yeah. always helps. It's a win. You know, everything's gravy. Everything's gravy when you're winning every week. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's easy. You know, sometimes it's a bit of, it feel, you know, you, the football experience can translate into into how you, how your kind of attitude is into everything else. But um, you got to enjoy the, the good times because in football, it's, it's, you know, you don't get many highs like we've had in the last six months and you just got to enjoy it and embrace it. And, um, you know, I'm learning the language, uh, which is not easy, but That's what I wanted to ask crack. you, I'm going to say, and because I know yeah. you're an educated man and, and you like you know, <laughs> doing other things outside of football, which one, which makes you, you know, not an individual, but to me, it's something that mm. I really liked about you knowing and growing up with you is that you don't really attach yourself to just being a football. Like you're, you're, you play music, you're kind of what I would like to call mm-hmm. a bit alternate or a hipster in Melbourne and so forth. But um, I had a feeling you might be having a crack at the German language. Like, is, is that been difficult? Cause that is a hard language to learn by the way. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, my, un- my understanding is, is I've been quite shocked at how quickly I've, I suppose when you're surrounded by it all the time, you do pick it up. So like, and we get no real coaching in English. Like he'll maybe give you a little individual instruction sometimes, but he addresses the group in German obviously all the time. So the onus is really, uh, is really on you to, um, to take that initiative, to pick it up. And, um, so yeah, I'm, my understanding is quite good. Like I don't really need anyone to translate anything to me now, but the actual, um, speaking and having a conversation because grammatically and stuff, it's such a tough language. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, one of the, like growing up as we, as we touched on, um, and as I mentioned with, with Jackson playing most of his, his career in, in the UK, like you've practically been abroad your whole career. And I recall probably, I don't know how old you were when you went to Celtic, but I remember just like that period. Mm. And, and I've spoke to Jane McLaren about this before. Like there was that window in Australia around sort of 15 to 17. If you weren't really in the Australian Institute of Sport and the youth team sort of set up hadn't really um, been built mm. as such around the A-Leagues. You didn't really have much of a mm-hmm. choice if you wanted to be a pro. Like you had to get overseas. And coming back to your story, you obviously see what you're doing now and how glorious it is. But like everything you've got has has been earned. Like without doubt, the sacrifices mm-hmm. you made as a kid um, were, have been remarkable. But can you just give us some insight into what those early days were like? Going over to a new country, going to Celtic, mm-hmm. um, and obviously then not coming back home. Probably you're 28 years old. Yeah, now. that's pretty pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's a strange time in your life, and I'm sure, as you say, other players who've had similar experiences will will be able to um, have have had something similar. But you know, I, you, as you say, I hit a certain age, and you know, although it started all gravy at under under twelve big state <laughs> team, I, I kind of fell I I kind of fell away from the representative football after that, and um, you know, I kind of didn't play in any more state teams after that, and didn't go to VI, didn't get selected like, VIS or AIS or anything like that. So. For me, it was kind of a different path, and um, it was it was more that I found my way into playing um, like senior level state team football from a younger age um, with Rashid at Frankston Pines. We had a good giggle about that the other, uh, on Instagram the other day. Um, but yeah, that was that was my kind of path, and then from from there, uh, you know, it was my my coach at at, um, at the state league level that had a connection into Celtic and the opportunity to go over on on trial and you know as you say you know you're sacrificing the thing but for me something I've probably reflected on as I've gotten older and had a better understanding of football is how lucky I was that you know my background and my family I had I had the opportunity for them to be able to take me over Mm. and do that you know I've 
I'm sure for so many kids, those opportunities maybe are there, but they don't have the the resources or the, you know, the support to be able to go and, and do that. And, you know, I reflect now and I look at like what my family went did to get me that opportunity as well, as much as my football earned me that they, their side of things as well, because you, know, move, you can have all that over? ability. And, did they move over? Oh, no. They didn't move up. They, they didn't, they didn't move over. I don't, I don't think they ever thought I'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably thought, oh, what's he got? A two-year, uh, 18-month youth team contract. Yeah. He'll be back. At... <laughs> yeah, it's Celtic. He's not going to get be... a gig. Yeah, yeah. He'll be back to finish year 12. <laughs> That's what they probably... <laughs> they, um... So, no, I think, I think it, you know, I've spoken to my parents about it, and you know, in the years gone by, and I think if they had the time over, they probably would have come over, especially in those early years. Um, but, yeah, no, again, going into Celtic, just... And I was naive, and... You know, you're playing in Australian football, and you know you know the big clubs. We've, you know, from my dad's Scottish, so I had an understanding. But until you're in that world of a club like that, um, there's nothing, nothing really compares to it. It's insane. And even as a, as a youth team player, you know, I've had a you know pretty decent career up to this point in my life. But I still will be recognised more for playing 45 minutes for Celtic in 2012 <laughs> than I will in any other for any other contribution to any club no I've played way. for. You know. Yeah, you will, uh, You know, I go back to Glasgow. I grew up there. I've got loads of mates there, and you know, people will still come up to you and be like, "Oh, I, I remember when you made your debut, and you know, you've gone on had a great career. Still follow you and stuff." Like it's, it's that world. That, that world of Celtic fans is unbelievable, and you know, for someone like you know, obviously a big Australian connection there over the years with Ange now and Tom has been there for years, yeah. and just an unbelievable club and city and. They live and breathe it like you would not believe. Yeah, I feel like it's it's one of those things, watching it on TV and seeing Ange have success and Celtic do so well for so long, you kind of get it, but until you're actually there, and, and one of the things that was most notable to me was Steven Gerrard when he, obviously he was on the other side with Rangers, yeah. but he spoke about how mm-hmm. big it was, and I'm like, he played for Liverpool and like played at World Cups, mm-hmm. and he still was saying like that old firm derby was like the craziest atmosphere yeah. and, and so important to people. Um when we, when we look at the time at Celtic, and you mentioned your debut, you obviously went through the academy ranks and, and were really sort of mm-hmm. highly rated there because I think you did train with the first team quite a bit um, despite sort of only playing the one game. What, what, was yeah, of, yeah. what was sort of the like the, the lessons or the harsh lessons you got out of that experience that probably made you a better footballer and more mature in a sense as well? Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. Um, it's, you know, football... At a, at a club like that is as you know it's as ruthless as it can be uh, anywhere and as a, as a as a youth team player it's so difficult to earn those opportunities and you have to be um, not just you know outstanding but you've got to be consistent which is difficult for most young players that's why the ones that do break through at these massive clubs you know will go on to to kind of be mainstays because to, that's the most difficult thing at that time and um, you know working with someone like Neil Lennon who was um, you know, a, a well-documented character, we'll put it that way. And um, yeah, there was there was a lot of a lot of hard lessons. You know, working with someone like Scott Brown, um, for someone like myself, who's you know, and most people have known me most of my life. I'll say I'm not the most like hard or intense kind of character. Yeah, I'm quite uh, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've I've kind of grown into that's probably part of me that grew while I was there was having to be able to step up into more of a, 
leadership position because you know I ended up captaining the youth sides and the reserve teams and stuff as well. And um, you do have to kind of embrace that, you know, just stick your chest out and be a Celtic player because otherwise you just get eaten up. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I just I wasn't good enough at that level. Like you, people say, you look back on it, like oh, if you've got more of a chance, this and that, but. You know, I, I had to go out and find my, a different path through the game because I, I was nowhere near ready for that level at that time. Yeah, and, and when you touch on that to, to kind of segue into it, your sort of, guess, drive to play more first-team football, I think the first two clubs you went to or the loan moves you had was like Kilmarnock and Ross County. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that sort of where you felt like you were more of a pro footballer or at least started to feel like established in the game when you started playing more consecutive football in the in the Scottish Premier League? Yeah, baptism of fire as well, going into like, um, you know, lower league, you know, small SPL uh, clubs, you know, with, you know, got coming from, you know, again, I had the luckiest, you know, well, luckiest, but um, most amazing kind of inter- integration into professional football at a massive club with unbelievable facilities, mm. you know, conditions and everything just top, top professional. And then all of a sudden, you know, I went on to Kilmarnock who, you know, you don't have a training ground and you're waiting for a text in the morning that like no meet at this, way. you know, meet, meet at this, meet at this place. You, you know, you're playing in the same league as, as that level. And it's like, it was just like, whoa, you know, bring your own lunch to training kind of thing, you know, picking up a uh, buddy Marks and Spencer's uh, meal deal, <laughs> you know, from, 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 the pet, from, from the petrol station on the oh way to training. Like, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's totally different. And, you know, I, I learned the hard way because I struggled massively in my first year, especially at Killy. Um, you know, getting played out of position, um, as you say, in a relegation battle. And, you know, as a young loan player with a contract at Celtic, you know, you realise being around guys who are battling for their careers, you know, a relegation from FPL to the championship for a lot of these guys, pay cuts, you know, a different career journey for them, you know, they might never might not get back to that level again. Whereas... Mm. So you realise the importance of what you're playing for every week in those games. I mean, that was that was probably the best thing I learned from that. And then when I went to Ross County, it was where I kind of probably grew into myself more as a player rather than, you know, probably an understanding of the game yeah. kind of changed a bit as well. So, yeah, definitely it was a big, massive learning experience, those two, two loans. I can imagine. Well, it's, it's incredible because when you think about your story, Probably some of those times are a little bit forgotten now for some people, obviously not yourself and people mm-hmm. close to you, but the, those sort of periods where you had to really earn your stripes and playing in some well, one of the toughest leagues in the world in regards to physicality and, as you said, the meaning to the fans and the people in, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Is, it's a different level. Um, was that around, was Ross County or was it after where you got your opportunity to come into Socceroo camp for the first time? So I actually did get my first call up when I was at Killy, um, but that was that, that. Yeah, that was probably more off the back of the Under Twenty World Cup, which we had that um, that summer. Um, and I had, a, I had a really good tournament, and um, you know I'd gone back, played a few senior games, a few preseason games with Celtic, and then gone on loan. And um, that was where I got my first call up into the Socceroos at that time. I do think there was probably I had played Scotland Under Nineteen kind of up to that point. Um, through my place over there, and I think there was probably a little bit of that, you know, yeah. as we've seen with players in the past. Cap him, make yeah. sure he doesn't. Yeah, you know, Jamie, he doesn't. Jamie McLaren's the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make sure we get him. And then, you know, I got, um, I came in, played that game, and then uh, it was a couple of years until I became more of a of a regular after that. Yeah, um, I, I actually recall like watching you quite a little bit, um, or, or just watching over you in in the UK because. 
I think after mm-hmm. that period, you moved to England, and and for anyone knows, like Jackson's career in the UK, like it was stellar. I mean, playing at Burton Albion and of, and of course Hull City, where you spent you know a majority of of your time. But the Championship football is like it's a different world of a league. I mean, I think it's like the fourth most watched league in the world as well. So it's highly mm-hmm. entertaining, but the the high pace, um, the energy around it, like. Did you have to adjust to that at all when you went from Scotland or were you, were you able to kind of just get straight into it and, and hit the ground running? I think, uh, I think the move that I made to Burton was probably the best thing I could have done. Um, you know, my second season at Ross County was like huge success for the club. Like we finished fourth or fifth in the league, um, won the club's first ever first major trophy. Um, you know, that was like a massive achievement for the club um, at the t- obviously at the time and, and moving from there to Burton which is probably a club of a similar size massively overachieving had gone back to back promotions League 2, League 1 and kind of got caught off guard and all of a sudden found himself in the championship you know with a you know a squad of guys that who were two seasons before playing in the fourth division you know what I mean Mental. and um, you know I-, I came in as the club's record signing for 250 grand <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> You know, Wolves, Wolves were signing Ruben Neves from Porto, like, yeah, and you know, and Bert, yeah, and Burton are bringing in this kid from Ross County as the record signing. So this was like the level oh, of where the club was God. at. So, so um, you know, this is you're playing against top international players, and and you know, this is where, as I say, where the club was at. They kind of just found themselves in the championship after a couple of amazing seasons. So it came in with no pressure. You know, mm. like in the sense that it was like we signed some great ex like guys kind of at the back end of their careers, like Lloyd Dyer, Ben Turner, guys who played in the Premier League who were probably in their mid thirties at that time. And um, you know, for me to be around guys like that who have played at the top level, um, but we just had like a total freedom almost to just go out and just give it a crack. You know, like mm. it was, and we survived. We like stayed up and pretty comfortably in the end, which was just a massive achievement for the club and um, you know my individual season was, was got me kind of the chance to progress again and move on to Hull so yeah although the step up in footballing level was was, was really big um, for myself being in that environment it's probably the best thing that could have happened for me Yeah was um, was your time at Hull was that something memorable I mean you were kind of like a, a bit of a fan favourite there and also like Hull being, being obviously my background being from the UK and, and having gone to Hull before, mm. it's a massive club like, it's, it's a huge club, great stadium, great facilities. I mean, was that sort of period for you? Um, I, I felt like you were probably maturing in your age and your career as well with the Socceroos. Mm. Did you kind of feel like now you can really sort of put your force and emphasis on the game and, and, and sort of become the player that you've yeah. become? Yeah, I think so. Like, it just, everything just fell kind of into, as like, the, the natural progression for me of playing in Scotland doing well, getting that move to England, to the championship. And then, you know, the, ne- the at that point, you know, I was 24, um, uh, 23, 24. And, you know, the next step is you want to not just, you know, establish yourself as a championship player, but you want to progress again. And Hull had just come down from the Premier League. We're still stacked with Premier League players, Michael Dawson, um, Abel Hernandez, Sebastian Larson, like, um, Top players, you know, Takayo Tomori was on loan from Chelsea, who's now AC Milan. Like, we had an unbelievable squad, and um, you know, for, for me again to, to then progress into that environment was just another huge step up on the day to day level of the 
kind of um, players around you and, and the expectation of the club, as you say, it's a one club city hole, probably one of the only one club cities in the UK. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the all the eyes are on you there. And um, although the fans and the probably, probably my biggest, the biggest disappointment of my time there was that there was a, the relationship between the owners and the fans had really deteriorated around that time. Right. And we probably didn't have the same energy around the club um, after the relegation from the Premier League and the, you know, to try and get back to that level, probably it was, there was just a few ingredients missing. And um, I think we did have too big a gap of players who had played at the highest level and young right. kind of motivated players, but we didn't quite get the balance right. But for myself, it was, as I said, I played three seasons there, over a hundred games and, um, the, probably, you know, to, to spend that time at a club like, at a club like that, although it didn't end in, um, the best way possible during COVID and contractual disputes. Yeah. But that's football that happens everywhere. And, yeah. you know, I feel like I had a big contribution to the place with the time I spent there. Have you gotten used to, I guess, the business of football? You talk about like contractual disputes and things going on off the field with fans and owners. Like, is that, I take it maybe that's not a world that you really love, but at the same time, is it something you've just mm-hmm. had to get used to and kind of just put your chest out and get on with it? Or It's a bit of both. I've, I've always found it difficult to accept, not only just because the business side of it can be so ruthless and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to put into words. I just... Mm. In any industry, in any business, you just you just want to be treated with respect and like with like that you have value and and that you you know I didn't feel at the end of that for my time there it didn't feel like my contributions and what I had given to the club was being respected at that level. You know what I mean? It was a purely business decision. And at the end of the day, I had to I, I was something I did have to accept that that was just the way it came to an end it was purely on through any kind of personal relationship that I built with them. Right. And, you know, that's tough to take for someone like myself who, you know, I throw, my, I throw my heart and soul into everywhere I go and you want to be a part of not just the club but the community. And, you know, I met my partner in Hull and, you know, I had built a kind of, you know, good relationship that, yeah. with the with the city as well. And to, to see it kind of collapse in the way it did at the end, yeah, it, it still doesn't really sit, sit right with me. But it's, as you say, that's just part of the game that players, we just have to do kind of grow, learn and accept and, the business of the game is, is is what's kind of projected football into this different stratosphere that we know, you know, nowadays. And yeah, it's not, it, it, it isn't always what you want to be a part of, but you know, it's just the way that way of the game that is nowadays. It's interesting because in, in football, sometimes things, they happen and you kind of don't understand the reason why, but I feel like this next mm. phase of your career, you look back and you're like, well, some, maybe some things do happen for a reason because Coming over to Germany and, and St. Pauli, um, obviously they're such a well-recognised club globally and not just because of on the field and they've got a cool kit that I absolutely love, by the way, but the global stance mm-hmm. they have on social issues. And you mentioned that you know, it's quite a good fit for you um, before when you were talking about it. Are you able to give you know the listeners that, that aren't fully aware of the club you're playing uh, for and some of the sort of... Um, I guess the societal issues and the things that they have around the club, the branding, what they sort of push into, I guess, the stratosphere of football, which is very unique. Are you able to give us a bit of insight mm-hmm. into, into that around the club? Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing that the club, the ethos and um, identity of the club is built around that very idea what you've talked about there, which is that 
a lot of people talk about politics and sport and the fact that they don't mix and um, that is just the kind of opposite of, of, of what, what St. Paolo is all about and you know a lot of it's not even politics it's just being promoting basic human rights you know what I mean they are very um, anti-fascist first, first and foremost that's what the, a lot of the club was built on in um, you know in Germany and in Europe and you know in years gone by, football hooliganism has been very closely related to national, you know, nationalistic views, and um, a lot of people in Hamburg and, and you know throughout um, Germany, you know, didn't like the direction that the that kind of football hooliganism was moving into, I guess. And and you know, St. Pauli was just it represents the very opposite of that. It's an inclusive space. It's a um, somewhere that doesn't just stand idly by and and you know, um, support things here and there. They live and breathe these um, these values, and it's it's pl- pasted on the walls, it's plastered in the streets. It's, yeah. As you say, it's part of the very fabric of what the club means, and um, and through that, they've built really good relationships with with a lot of other clubs throughout Europe who have tried to embrace that kind of similar similar idea. And yeah, for myself personally, I, they have a very close relationship with Celtic as well. I'd actually been to St. Pauli as a Celtic during a pre-season tour oh. in Germany as, when I was younger. And, um, you know, I think that kind of me understanding that about the club already made it such an easy decision to go and be a part of it. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty unique. It must be refreshing to play, you know, at the highest level um, for a club that's got traditions that stand firmly against racism, as you said, fascism, mm-hmm. sexism, homophobia. Like it's a pretty awesome environment, and you touched on some of the like the stuff that's plastered around the stadium and around the city. But I just wanted to read <clears throat> one quote that I think it's a poster on the stadium. Uh, we don't have silverware; instead, we have something a lot better. We have a story to tell: the incredible story of how a community-based club from Hamburg becomes one of the most famous football teams in Europe without big trophies, without big money. That's pretty cool. Like very unique. I, I don't know many clubs that mm-hmm. have that sort of view on football because very much so as we touched on, it's a business um, for, for a lot of clubs mm-hmm. where they want to win, they want to drive revenue, they don't care how they do it, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for myself, like, as I say, coming off probably that experience of um, the, my departure from Hull and then the other side of football business, which is, you know, um, then when you, I spent six months, not nearly 10 months without a club, um, you know, due, due to other football business related industries like mm. agents and etc and things like that and um, you know to kind of navigate my way back into this space from there is yeah as you say some things I suppose you have to look at it that the path is it kind of falls into place for a reason and um, yeah for, for St. Pauli I suppose you know of all these things that are so great about you know the, the team off the pitch as well and I think what we found is season is that blend of, of being able to bring those quote like that that feeling of, of the club and, and what it represents in the world but also you know at the end of the day I still want, I'm you know I'm want to play in the national team I want to play at the highest level I want to I'm still so motivated you know that was still a massive part of the decision to go there and the conversations I had with coach and sporting director and being able you know having that understanding of balance of what you can bring to the club off the pitch and contributions in a footballing sense it's the reason I think we've had such success this season already. It's, it's incredible. And just one, one on a bit of a lighter note around the club, which is even more 
probably one of the best things I've ever read in football. Like, and and I spoke to <laughs> Vince Ugari, actually, um, you know, one of the one of the great football journalists in this country for the Sydney Morning Herald, and he, he actually put out a tweet, and it must have been after an interview with you. But uh, in that tweet, you were quoted talking about a particular game that St. Pauli had a great game. They won. I think they were on the bus back home. And you might have pulled over. I think it was a little town in Bavaria. And this is a professional club we're talking about. You know, nutrition, health, it's, it's number one. But, uh, you know, St. Pauli, they've pulled over in this little town and they've popped up at a very famous little kebab shop. And the squad's on the side <laughs> of the street, apparently, just eating kebabs. Like, <laughs> is, that a, is that a true story? Did that actually happen? True story, mate. Yeah, we just played Heidenheim. And I think we, yeah, I think, I don't know if it was when we the first time we went top of the league, but we were top of the league, second Bundesliga at the time. And yeah, we're on, on the way back. Obviously, great result. Um, we're on our way back to the airport and bus just pulls over in this village and everyone just like piles into this kebab shop, mate. And like, <laughs> we were just like sit, sitting on, I was just like sitting on the curb on like the street outside with like a, a beer beside me eating a kebab in my trackie like after the game just like in this little place I was like this is class <laughs> I was like this, this, is unbelievable. this is unbelievable I was like just I don't know anywhere many other clubs in the world that you could uh, that you know this and no one even you know I think the best thing about it was that no one was even like surprised by it like no one even thought like oh this is crazy like this is like some weird thing to <laughs> do just everyone normal. was just like oh yeah we, we, we do stuff like this all the time oh wow <laughs> mate what a place what a place to be yeah. playing football um if we if we dip back into obviously you've been playing for the Socceroos for a long time you've been associated with um Australian football for a long time now I know the PFA is a pretty important space for you because you you've always been around it with the Socceroos you've always been around the messaging I think there's a lot of similarities in your views of how the game should be run and um, situations within the game that the PFA obviously resolve and support and the mantra that they have. Um, it was announced sort of towards the end of last year that you joined the illustrious uh, PFA executive, which is a pretty special thing for you know footballers around the game to be associated with, but also just to be on the exec. It's a big thing looking at the past players that have done it and the impact they've had on the game. Can you speak to us a little bit about the role of what the PFA exec does and, and potentially, you know, how you came into, I guess, wanting to be a part of that and how that happened? Yeah, it's been kind of, again, part of my kind of growth as a player and a person, I guess. And um, as you say, I've been so so lucky in my soccer career to be around, um, you know, the, the players who have been in these roles before but working with the PFA closely over the years and seeing the positive impact that they can have on the game and, um, you know, on and off the field in our in our country and for players based overseas, and you know to have the opportunity to be a part of that. And as I say, as the game is evolving and changing, and um, it's just it's so exciting to be working with people who have such clear a clear identity of where they see footballers and the path for, for the game in our country. And for, for me to to have a small part of that as as, as a part of the executive to be have a small voice um, at the moment and, and, you know, it's something I'm very keen to, to grow into and, um, you know, encouraging players to be more active on social issues is, is a massive part of it as well. But, you know, the growth of the game on and off the field in the country is, is a priority and, um, you know, we've seen, you know, with the Women's World Cup coming and, and you know, the Matildas on an amazing form in, in, in the Asian Cup as as well as the Socceroos and, you know, the amazing performances from the Olympic at the boys, the Olympics. And, um, you know, we're in such a good space at the moment. And, you know, as I say, to play a, a small part in that at the moment is, is, is just so exciting. And 
they say I'm something that's still relatively new to me, but it's a role I'm, I'm really keen to grow into. That's awesome. Do you have a, I mean, you might obviously develop this as you go, given you're sort of early into it, as you said, but do you, do you have a sort of view of maybe the impact you'd like to make, um, you know, across that, across that position? Is that something you're sort of still building in yourself maybe? Yeah, I think that's still something within myself, as, as I say, as it's, um, as a player that's still playing overseas and, um, you know, not probably myself and Maddie. You know, not spending as much time in Australia as, as a lot of the. It's more difficult to probably do things at, at ground level, mm. but yeah, to be involved in in the messaging that we that we want to have amongst players, and you know, being a, in a supportive role for the younger players that are playing overseas is something I'd I'd like to do as well. Having been through kind of That's my amazing. pathway as well, so as I say, it's, it's something I'm still kind of learning and growing into as well. But I would say definitely encouraging players to be more active on social issues is something that's really driven me into um, into this role as well. Yeah, agreed. And, and maybe it's probably a good segue to, to touch on this because I was going to, and, and we will speak about, I guess, your Socceroos journey a little bit because there's some things about the Socceroos world that I'd love to know because I've never been a Socceroo and you're obviously in the, in the Australian top there in camp at the moment. So we'll get some questions on that. But just speaking on, I guess, some of the social issues and you've played at World Cups before, you've experienced some of these major tournaments with, you know, that, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Obviously, Qatar is is coming up and around the corner in some regards and, and the qualification process is well underway for most nations. I guess for you, uh, and you, you've been quite outspoken on some of the issues, the social issues of Qatar, and, and for those that don't know, obviously, it's well documented everywhere and you'll probably hear Jackson just touch on a little bit. But when did you start taking, it? I guess, an, an active interest or come across some of the challenges and, uh, I guess, some of the the social issues that was, you know, built around the, the development of the, of the World Cup there? I think a lot of people were kind of aware of it from, from like, the earliest time of the announcement of, of, of the World Cup being there. But, as you know, as, as we all know in the world, things then start to, you know, you move on for, for years go by. And, and then, you know, it's obviously people have been trying to make these changes over a long period, but... I think it was over the last few years when these major reports have come out and we've seen the kind of, unfortunately, sometimes it can come once the statistics start to come out and you can see genuinely, like in black and white, how this is affecting, mm-hmm. um, how this is affecting people in certain ways that it drives people to, to talk about the issue more seriously. And as players, um, you know, there's been some amazing work done by um, a lot of players speaking out over the last couple of years as well. I know the German and Danish national teams did early doors and the captain of Finland um, as well has, has been very outspoken on the issue. And um, I think, again, it's kind of tied into probably where I am in my life, mm-hmm. my growth as a player and a person that has, has, has made me realise that, especially as someone who plays in Asia, we've done a lot of games, played a lot of games in Qatar that you know we have an actual, a real impact, a real footprint on, on, on the country and, and the you know, our presence in the country affects directly affects um, you know the, the the people who are being exploited. And for us, I think it's important that we have a real understanding of, of what that means and how we can affect it with lasting change. But as well as take care of when we do go into those places, that we know exactly what it is that we're, that that our presence there is, mm. is, is doing. Is that something you sort of see the Socceroos as much as the main aim is to get to the World Cup and qualify? And- and have a great tournament. Is there an element of like the, you know, the, I guess the brand of the Australian national team feels a bit of a responsibility to, to kind of have a view or to share their thoughts around this? Because um, it, as, as we touched yeah. on, it's, it's pretty crazy what's going on there at times. 
Mm. Yeah, I hope so. Um, uh, it's been great to see the engagement we've had from, from the players, um, uh, from the men and women's national teams have, have really engaged on the issue and we've had meetings with, with Amnesty and I suppose the first step is education. We need to re- have a real clear understanding of, of what's going on. As, you know, as players, we're probably not... Um, sometimes it's difficult to get a real grasp on what it is yeah. what is actually going on until you have um, the people who, as you say, have been working on these issues for years and have a real understanding of how laws and things change and um, how it's not just about it's not just about building stadiums. It's about, you know, as you say, as soon as you touch down in, in these countries, the majority of the workforce of Qatar is built with migrant workers and that's from the airport to the hotel to the, you know, everything that you do once you get there is... is is affecting um, this population, and um, that, you know, I know. That, keep, that, um, sorry to interrupt, but is that one of the main things that was no. sort of seen as the issues? Was like the workers' rights. Obviously, there's been, I think, there's been deaths around yeah. build, the development of stadiums. Like that's yeah. sort of what you're referencing, mm-hmm. right, just for the listeners. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, there's been a lot of other issues as well with the exploitation in terms of their, that system over there called the kafala system, where basically um, businesses. Had were stopping workers being able to even you know return home or leave those jobs and were you know um, not being paid and not being allowed to unionize so that they can even uh, the workers have not been, have been unable to kind of you know even take responsibility into their own hands in terms of wanting to make that change those changes for themselves. So wow. um, there's a number of issues that that, that need to, that need to be addressed. And um, as as players, I think we have a unique voice and position to be able to draw attention to these issues as well. And um, it's a it, it's a, it's a sensitive one, but it's not it's not about um, you know, pointing fingers and and um, in, in a certain way. It's just about this this is a change that is possible, and these are the the pathways to being able to do it. And um, I think yeah, it's something that I hope will continue to be pressed on post World Cup and into mm. the future. You know, it's not something that we just want to shine a light on and over the next year and then, you know, will disappear, you know, once the World Cup leaves because these issues are, uh, you know, are long-lasting and you want lasting change is the most important thing. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, I think people like yourself, Jackson, in our game is, is only positive and, and the future of the PFA and also football in this country with, as I said, people like yourself, Matty Ryan and, and the rest of the execs where I think we're in very good hands um, as the listeners will listen into, But... I just want to jump into, I guess, the Socceroos world now because that's what's relevant. Mm-hmm. It's where we are. You're from Melbourne and, and we touched on as well before we jumped on, like you haven't been in Australia or Melbourne, I say specifically, for like three or four years, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You're in obviously the COVID protocols, so you can't exactly go home um, even though because you're a Melbourne yeah. boy, but you're here. I mean, mm-hmm. does it feel pretty awesome to be back? Oh, yeah. Listen, it's it's uh, it's obviously, as you say, it's unique circumstances. Um I haven't been, I was saying you off, off camera before that it's my first time in Australia, let alone Melbourne in January, in Australian summer in 11 years. Wow. Um, you know, normally our break falls in the June, so I'm always here in, in the, the depths of winter. So um, <laughs> to be here and experience a bit of Australian summer is absolutely glorious. Um, but obviously the, the downside is that we're in a kind of bubble situation, so not being able to catch up with family and friends. But um, you know, we are here to do a job and you know, my family will come to the game and I'll, I'll be able to kind of um, see them, see them from the pitch, and uh, yeah, as you say, it's it's not ideal, but you know, there, a lot of people have faced much worse circumstances over the last uh, over the last couple of years. So it's um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll get the chance to come back and, and do Melbourne properly uh, 
soon as I can. No doubt, mate. No doubt. It'll always be home, I'm sure, in, in one way, shape or another. But um, for, for those listening, like myself and, and many others that have never done the Socceroos jersey, never been in a Socceroos camp, mm-hmm. are you able, and this might be a bit more unique of a camp given sort of the COVID you know, regime and so forth, but are you able to give us a bit yeah. of insight into what what a camp's like, how, how the sort of build up towards a, a game is as, as a Socceroos player? Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, staff here are incredible. Um, the preparation, you know, not just in terms of tactically and technically on the field, but the support staff, everything that's done. You know, boys, we've got boys that have landed at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday night. We're going to have less than 48 hours to prepare for, for a game after doing wow. playing on the weekend and then traveling across the world. And um, the, the the medical and as I say across the board the preparation is just top level it gives, everything's in place for us to be able to perform and um, the environment itself is, is such a joy it is a real family environment and there's people you know people here who have, who you've known for eight nine years now and um, you know we've got such good relationships with and it, that kind of feeling makes it so comfortable for the younger players and and players who are coming in for the first time to really just ease into it and. It's not as a, it's not not an intimidating environment. I feel like everyone who comes in straight away is, is comfortable and um, yeah, it's, it's it's such a joy to be a part of. And you know, it's not you know I think our clubs don't love it. Obviously, with us having to fly around the world, <laughs> play a couple fly. of games, and come back. Yeah, exactly. But for for us, it's it's um, yeah, every time's a pleasure. And you say we 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 have such good relationships. You say you know guys like Jamie, who I've known since I was a kid and you know, we'd obviously play on opposite sides of the world now, but to come into here and, and you know, be able to catch up, have, have a coffee and, and then go out and, you know, be that's on awesome. the pitch together. It's, it's, it's just so good. It's so good. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you can't really compare that to anything, can you? But I mean, for you, because, and you can obviously see you're, you're in your hotel room now. I mean, there's probably a lot of downtime as well, as much as the energy into mm-hmm. tactics and training and team meetings. Is there a sort of a, a way you keep yourself busy on Socceroo camps or, or when you're sort of playing away from home at times? I know you're a, into your music and so forth, but is there anything that you kind of mm-hmm. do to keep your brain sort of stimulated? Or Yeah, to be fair, it's, it's, uh, it's one of them, especially in these environments. But I see normally if we were here and, um, you know, like just now we've had lunch at one o'clock and then, you know, your next meeting's not till maybe five until um, we train in the evening. You know what I mean? Normally it would be right. Let's get go. Let's go into Melbourne. Let's go for a walk through Albert Park and go and get a coffee, and you know, or you know, catch up with someone. So, as you say, it's unique circumstances being stuck in a hotel or instead. But you've just got to you, you get through it the way you can. And you know, I bought my German books with me. I'm doing a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of study on on the way. Can you as give well, us anything? But, um, can you give us any German? Like some basic. Let's just hear the pronunciation you've got. Oh god, <laughs> probably under the tongue there as well. Um, I feel I can't even spell. I feel every time I speak to my German teacher, I feel like she's just laughing at me. I was actually laughing because I was speaking with Brandon Brello um, before because he's he's been in Germany nearly five years now, and um, he's like he speaks fluent. He doesn't oh, need any okay. kind of um, you know. He's like totally comfortable in it and everything. And I was just talking about you know me in my first few months here, and you know I'll go to a I'll go to a cafe or a restaurant now. You know. I'll give it a go and I'll order in German and they just reply to you in English and it's just like, oh, oh God. That is, that's, <laughs> that is hurting the it's morale. So demor- it's, yeah. it's so demoralizing. It is. It's like I've come all this way. I'm like trying really hard, but they love it. They love speaking English and, um, you know, they, they, a lot of younger people, especially they want to use, they use it as a chance to practice their English in a lot of, in some circumstances. So 
yeah, there's, there's probably nothing more demoralizing than when you try and start a conversation in German and they just reply to you in English. So, well, yeah. no. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, well I tell you ideal. what, um, Jackson Irvine, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the PFA uh, podcast, the footballer's voice. I mean, somewhat you were kind of, you kind of had to come on on the PFA exec. So I feel like we, <laughs> we twisted your arm a little bit easier. But, Hung on me for that, yeah. yeah but no, in all honesty, as I said, the game's in great hands. Uh, absolute wonderful football that, you know, you spoke about those state teams where you, you didn't make towards any. I mean, it was it was a no-brainer. Jackson Irvine should have been in those teams. And it's completely justified now watching you play for the Socceroos and, and obviously St. Pauli. But uh, more importantly, off the field, wonderful person, man. And, and um, really looking forward to seeing what you can achieve on, on both parts going forward. So thank you for coming on the show, mate. Oh, mate, my pleasure. Anytime. Cheers. Beautiful.